Don Bachman, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned into episode 4.15 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by MND by TAS, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. April 2020. Hope everybody is able to enjoy spring um, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, quarantine or social distancing recommendations. Um, Hopefully everybody's getting outside a little bit, managing their risk appropriately if you are venturing into the backcountry and hopefully just catching up on lots of podcasts. I'm planning on continuing to pump them out. I've got another four or five after this one scheduled for the season and already gathering some content for next season. So just like I have the last several years, I'll probably you know, shut this thing down in June um, and then pick it back up in October. So you guys will get a little break from new episodes great time to go back and listen to some earlier episodes in the in the podcast history if you are newer to the show great way to catch up on that and continue your avalanche awareness and education hopefully you see this as an educational continuing educational opportunity i want to give a big shout out to the sponsors of the show um, it really wouldn't be possible for me to do this without the continued support of um, MND by TAS, makers of Gazx, Obelex, Daisy Bell, and Gazflex systems, some of the best remote avalanche control systems on the market, as well as 10 Barrel Brewing out of Bend, Oregon. Um, their continued support has been great, both through refreshing beverages and financial support. And of course, the support of InterWest Insurance. Thank you so much for your continued support as well. Uh, We just found out last week that the hard decision was made to postpone um, ISSW that was going to take place in October 2020 in Fernie, B.C. Um, That hard decision was made to push it back a year, um, so that will be taking place in fall of 21 and I know I appreciate uh, those folks on the committee making that hard decision early on so that people can plan accordingly Um, hopefully things will be settled down a bit by then Um, but it is certainly hard to make plans at this current juncture of life um, given the current situation so if you haven't heard no ISSW, and if you don't know what ISSW is, that's the International Snow Science Workshop. 
Um, so that, that'll be pushed back to fall of 21, uh, October of 21, uh, specifically in Fernie, BC. Today's episode is going to feature Don Bachman. Don um, is a pioneer within the snow and avalanche world. Um, his career has spanned both the analog and the digital age of information collection and analysis and information sharing. Um, he's had uh, experience as a ski patroller, highway and industry forecaster, and a snow and avalanche researcher. Um, and I was able to catch up with Don in his home in Bozeman, Montana. This last October, we sat down and, and he recounted his career within the snow and avalanche world. Um, has some great stories and some great memories, um, some great lessons learned along the way. So I'll let Don give his own introduction into his career path as a snow and avalanche forecaster. Here we go with Don Bachman. Welcome to the show, Don. It's a privilege to have you here. Thanks for making the time. Well, it's an honor for me to be selected for this uh, interview. All right. Well, I was hoping you could give us a, a history of your career in, in avalanche work, really. I know um, you have a have had a long career in working with avalanches and and introduce yourself. Tell us, tell us what you've done. Sure. Well, it really started out uh, with my father, who was a uh, employee of the U.S. Forest Service out in California. In the uh, well, he worked out there his whole career from the twenties into the sixties, and in the fifties, I would go with him uh, to the ski areas. He was a permit. Um, administrator, and he took me to Dodge Dodge Ridge in California uh, a good part of the time in the 50s when I was in before and when I was in high school. So that really got me into skiing. And after I uh, had spent the, uh, I graduated high school in 56 and then went to uh, junior college for a couple of years and then uh, migrated to uh, Oregon State College in Corvallis at that time and went to the uh, Hoodoo Bowl and got on the ski patrol there and took an avalanche course from uh, Ross Petrie uh, from uh, Portland, I believe he was, and got my Circle A avalanche patch, which I proudly displayed and uh, but then I was kicked out of Oregon State College the forestry school and drove to Tuckerman's Ravine <laughs> <laughs> and when I got to Tuckerman's uh, I was caught in the first avalanche I was skiing uh, on Hillman's Highway just to the lookers left at uh, the uh, headwall and uh, was carried down in this wet slide that I had uh, tied with at the entrance to the headwall proper and uh, was carried down to the 
to the Lunch Rock area. People are familiar with that. On the surface, to the applause of uh, the lunch people there. And that made me think that maybe this is a, a career that I would like to invest in a little bit more. And also during that trip, my first avalanche control um, program that I saw was the U.S. Forest Service snow ranger there firing at the headwall with a 50 caliber machine gun and knocking off the uh, icicles off the, the wall. And uh, that got me very interested in avalanche control work. So growing up in California and then go, spending some time in, in Oregon, you, you passed through some pretty mountainous states on your way to New Hampshire. Not that, that the Mount Washington area is not mountainous, um, but what was your draw to going to Tuckerman's Ravine? Well, it's primarily for uh, um, for reputation. And I had a friend back there at Arcadia National Park that I visited and and we actually uh, went to climb Katahdin in Maine, but got turned back and ended up spending about 10 days in the backcountry. But that really uh, initiated my interest in, uh, in mountaineering, mm. uh, ironically, in the Northeast uh, rather than so much in, uh, in Oregon. Although I have to say that I climbed with the Oregon State Mountain Club and had some really good... Uh, pre-mentors in uh, for backcountry climbing and and work like that sure i uh from there went to uh golden colorado at the invitation of uh art judson who i had known back at oregon state mm. and uh judge suggested that i um, go to Berthet Pass, which was a ski area at that time, and um, look to see if there was any work up there. And fortunately, there was. Um, I was the weekday ski patrol uh, director of one. And uh, in those days, Berthet wasn't very busy, uh, especially during the weekday. You get to know the names of the skiers even. And But I did fall under the tutelage of Dick Stillman, who was the Forest Service snow ranger at the time. And this was in uh, 1960 and 61. And Dick was a, uh, uh, had been a member of the uh, Forest Service avalanche team at Squaw Valley for the uh, 1960 Olympics. And in exchange for bunk space in the Snow Ranger shack there, he uh, asked if I would take the daily observations of snow and, and uh, avalanche events. Uh, so I did. And that was a very fortuitous invitation because I became uh, sort of a student of Dick's. He was quite a good mentor. And... Uh, that year and the following year, um, well, the following year I was back at Colorado State University, but the, the, those two years I took uh, daily or weekly uh, snow and avalanche observations. 
and uh, had the privilege of uh, working with him on avalanche control. Uh, he was teaching me how to use and handle explosives. We had the first avalanche trials back there where we had cement-filled dog cans as our practice projectile. And so I got a sense of the uh, avalanche control work from an avalanche perspective and uh, got to work with Dale Gallagher and uh, Whit Borland and some other of the early legends in stone avalanche observation. Hmm. I was drafted into the military in uh, 62 after spending two winters essentially at Birth and Pass and was fortunate enough to get into the uh, 11th Air Assault Division, which was a helicopter and artillery uh, battalion that I was in. So I became familiar with both the use of helicopters and the uh, ins and outs of artillery. We had 105s and uh, 75s, and that became sort of an unconscious uh, transition into avalanche control work that I had no idea I was going to retain until I got back to Colorado and moved to Crested Butte in uh, 1965. School and I just didn't get along. And uh, got a job on the ski patrol there uh, as assistant patrol director, interestingly enough, and worked with a Forest Service uh, snow ranger by the name of Shami Samrak. And uh, Shami and I would use two different um, 75 millimeter recoilless rifles to do avalanche control. Uh, in the ski area, which was quite unique during that period, uh, that we'd have that opportunity. The, um, and that lasted for about four years. In the meantime, uh, I also uh, had a tavern <laughs> that uh, gave me some insights into how other people think. And in uh, 1971 or 70, I'm not sure which year, uh, I was invited to join the University of Colorado Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research uh, program that was being developed in Silverton, Colorado. So I went to Silverton and did the initial logistics for that program in 71 and obtained a home to live in and an office to work in downtown Silverton and then arranged for a, a observation a facility on top of Red Mountain Pass. There was a, a cabin there and a... Uh, a mine bunkhouse that was ideal for what we were doing and contracted out with a carpenter in Silverton. He and I um, 
made the cabin livable. He was a very interesting guy to work with. He was from Italy, and all his uh, measurements were done in centimeters, which was very interesting because that's the way we measure snow uh, at the time. So he was a good guy, and I learned a lot from him, and we began the avalanche project in the fall of 1971, I believe it was. Then that project um, uh, attracted uh, Richard Armstrong and Betsy Armstrong. They were not married at the time, but were soon married. And uh, Rod Newcomb and myself and uh, Ed LaChapelle as a principal consultant and a researcher and that lasted for a period of four years and Ed really became my second mentor. Uh, first was Stillman, uh, second was La Chapelle and Ed and I kept our relationship going until he uh, tragically passed away a few years back. Incidentally all of Ed's uh, archives, which include a, a one-ton truckload of material, are uh, now archived in the Silverton Historic Museum, uh, or brought down from Alaska. And uh, the, the archive there, and, and Dick and Betsy Armstrong, who are maintaining their interest in the avalanche world, have... Uh, gone through those and have cataloged them and placed them in Silverton. So just so everyone knows if they want to see some of the original avalanche information and research work, it's down there in, in the town of Silverton at the Silverton Museum. Hmm. Don, could you talk a little bit about the Silverton Avalanche Project and, and what was going on there at that time? Sure. The Silverton Avalanche Project was um, initiated uh, by the suggestion of, of Silverton residents and Uray residents to um, who were sort of alarmed at the concept of cloud seeding as a water uh, or hydro hydrologic uh, boost to the water system. Water system being, of course, the Colorado system that uh, went down eventually to city of Los Angeles and a growing population there. They were afraid that if we had more snow, we'd have more avalanches. So our very simplistic um, initial um, charge in that area was to see if that was true. Uh, so we established the Silverton Avalanche Project in uh, spring of 1971, established the uh, uh, three um, observation points, uh, Molus Pass, um, Red Mountain Pass. Let me think of the third one. Oh yeah, up on the above the Brooklyn's Avalanche Pass. It was a remote 
station that you had to ski into. Hmm. Um, the other two, you could do daily observations there. And, of course, we had a little instrumentation down in Silverton. And you were taking daily obs from the cabin up on Red Mountain Pass? On Red Mountain Pass. Yeah. And when you, when you couldn't um, drive back and forth to the summit of the pass because of avalanches, we would stay there. So you would have a really wonderful two or three or four days of isolation on top of the pass doing six-hour interval observations while the avalanches were falling on the, on the highway. We had the uh, good fortune of having several very good winters hmm. uh, that forced us to do that. So who would close the highway at that point? Because this is pre C dot C A I C. That's right. And uh, the highway would essentially would close itself. Yeah. There was no uh, formal um, method or of uh, of saying when the highway was open or closed, and that's what we were attempting to develop. And we inventoried all the avalanche paths that crossed the highway inventoried a number of avalanches that didn't cross the highway, observed those avalanches uh, running naturally, and observed the avalanches that the highway department would shoot down uh, with a a, um, 75 millimeter pack howitzer at the time being operated by Noel Peterson. Um, So with, with Noel's tutelage with the gun and uh, our observations, we began to develop a, uh, a very good program. I think we had uh, 80 or 83% uh, success in forecasting naturally running avalanches and something like 90% for uh, controlled explosive initiated avalanches. During that time, of course, Ed LaChapelle was there. And uh, he had moved to town along with his wife, Dolores. And uh, we got to be very close friends. And Ed was developing a system of of alternative methods of releasing avalanches. Uh, and that would, it consisted of exploders that were pre-installed in avalanche starting zones in the uh, uh, in the fall or in summer and fall, and then uh, detonated with a mixture of uh, propane or oxygen or, and uh, volatile gases like that um, at at will. We didn't put these in an avalanche starting zones that affected the highway, but rather something to test the uh, the efficacy of that. And it's very interesting uh, to see the evolution of avalanche control because when we were doing the initial installation of these exploders, which were big uh, canisters that were with removable lids that were tethered in the uh, avalanche pass by being essentially partially buried in them. And then these avalanche uh, explosion devices were initiated with uh, with gases, propane and oxygen, 
that were established in a uh, in a safe location, and you would go to this safe location, inflate the uh, canisters or, or load them with propane, and then uh, explode them with a spark-like detonator. So to try this out, we actually, and I vividly remember this, um, when we had it all put together and the, the lines about to be connected between the, the uh, tanks and the exploder, um, we put our lunch bags on the edge of the, uh, or on the end of the, uh, of the hoses before we attached them and inflated our lunch bags and then uh, zapped the exploder, the explosion device, the sparker, and watched our lunch sacks blow up in midair. Uh, so it became perhaps the initiation of the GAZX program to have a, a, a lunch sack being inflated with propane and then ignited by a spark that was remotely controlled. Don't know that to be sure, but uh, we think it was the initiation of gas eggs. Sure sounds like it. <laughs> so that was a good a good uh, program. The, the end result, though, um, was in, in some very good uh, publications and avalanche atlases that were developed for the highway. Um, but we never did figure out if more snow meant more avalanches. Hmm. And it probably doesn't. And the cloud seeding continues, I believe, to this day in uh, southwestern Colorado without any adverse uh, impact on the avalanches. When that was over, um, or just about over, I was invited to... Um, and that was on like a five-year contract or something? Yeah, like four, years four years for, for my, mm-hmm. my participation. It actually worked on, went longer than that, uh, four or five or six years, I think, with a minimum of observation. But uh, Jerry Roberts and Tim Lane um, had that position uh, later, part-time. And then uh, from there, I was invited to go to the... Uh, uh, Avalanche Warning Center, uh, which was, as it was known, and Fort Collins at the uh, Rocky Mountain Range and Experiment Station. And Art Judson, who had originally lured me into Colorado, um, then lured me up to Fort Collins. And uh, I engaged in that program for four years, which involved largely setting up... Um, instrumentation at uh, four service permitted ski areas uh, such as Crested Butte and uh, Breckenridge and Vale and and, um, Arapahoe and so on. So we had a systematic um, information gathering system that was all analog. It was, there was no, no such thing as digitals. We had a well, I wouldn't say that, but we had a mainframe computer at uh, at CSU that uh, we stored our information in, but everything was written down by hand on uh, blue sheets and green sheets. The green sheets were for the weather, and the blue sheets were for the uh, 
for the avalanche events that occurred at ski areas. So that introduced me to uh, a more systematic way of gathering information and uh, and then disseminating it to the public. And so this would be um, written down during observations at the ski areas and then called into CSU in Fort Collins? That's correct. Yeah, it was actually all Forest Service. CSU didn't have much okay. except to loan their uh, uh, computer uh, to us. Uh-huh. Computers in those days. Uh, no desktops, no no uh, cell phones. <laughs> right. So it was quite an experience. And uh, the... Um, that work later became, of course, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center after it was given over to the state of Colorado. And Knox Williams was there that whole time. Knox was there the whole time. Yeah. So I, I ended up working for Knox. And uh, and then, of course, he um, continued on with the state. Right. It was quite an interesting transition that we made there. From the Fort Collins position... Um, I was getting a little frustrated not living in the mountains. So I went back to Crested Butte and immediately uh, had an offer to um, go to Alaska. Mm. And the Seward Highway needed someone that had the experience with artillery uh, that also worked for the Forest Service because of the technicality of, of the uh, U.S. government having control over the weapon. And whereas in permitted ski areas, there was always a, uh, a Forest Service person there. There wasn't that situation on the Seward Highway out of Anchorage, Anchorage to essentially to Homer. And um, so we had... Or I had that experience and worked uh, from the beginning there with Dave Hamry and and um, Jim Hackett and others that uh, had a uh, had a handle and systematically observing, forecasting, and controlling the Seward Highway by working out of Girdwood, uh, which was quite a winter. Um, we didn't get to do much control work because it was such a a um, exceptional winter that most of the avalanches came down on their own. And uh, it was more of an observational winter than a forecasting winter. And uh, we could have, you could ask Dave Ambry about that mm-hmm. sometime. It was really, it was really something. 3,000 cars a day or so and all wanting to go somewhere and couldn't. Uh, so it was, uh, um, it was very interesting. The um, from there I went back down to Colorado, drove back down and uh, um, got a position with uh, Sun Oil in uh, Wyoming in 1980 and 81 during that season, and that was almost an opposite of of uh, Alaska. The Forest Service had permitted a drill rig positioning in the Salt River Range, um, not in the wetlands where the company wanted to locate, but under uh, about seven or eight avalanche paths, 
which they didn't realize uh, existed. And when uh, one of the uh, avalanche people with the ski area, Teton Village there, took a look at the site just on the whim of, um, of one of his supervisors, uh, he said, Jesus, this is really an avalanche area. And uh, so I was called um, through connections that I had with Wyoming and uh, went up there and set up an avalanche here. And uh, in the parking lot, in a safe place, outfitted all the uh, three shifts of workers there with Raymer two avalanche beacons. Interestingly enough, the, the standard avalanche beacon would not work there. It was get interference from the electrical generators hmm. at the drill site. But the Raymer would work. Hmm. And it also worked for finding people under the snow, which we never had to do, fortunately. But uh, the, uh, the band camp there was then protected by uh, liquid-filled canisters that, uh, well, canisters is a, a diminutive term. Uh, they were about the big uh, frack tanks, essentially. They are around 12 feet high and 10 feet in diameter. And uh, so those were, would uh, resist any avalanches that came off the slope above the man camp the drill rig itself was safe, but there were avalanches on either side of the drill rig uh, that uh, exposed the workers to uh, potential problems. But we about eight missions or so with the avalanche, and uh, winter was over with uh, no fatalities and no uh, no problems. The drill site, incidentally, has been capped. I visited it about 20 years ago, and it was, it's all been revegetated, and you'd never know that it was there unless you were familiar with the area. The avalanches are still running. Um, well, I had an avalanche here, and... Um, that was your bonus. That was my bonus. <laughs> and uh, put it in the back of my truck, and... Uh, Drove to uh, Silverton again, where I'd been asked to uh, do the speed skiing work. Uh, it was recognized by then that there were avalanche problems on the ski slopes and on the access, so I was sent to uh, see what we could do about it. And thus began a long, um, independent sort of project that I had with the avalanche and speed skiing. And there was a lot of money in this? This was a big event that was going to take place in Silverton? This was a big event that was sponsored by Camel Cigarettes, uh -huh. which happened to be my brand at the time. Uh -huh. So I got all of, all the Camel Cigarettes I wanted, <laughs> except they were all filters. <laughs> and I didn't like the filter yeah. Camels, so I... Well, broke off the filters and smoked the other ones. But uh, that was, uh, went on for uh, two winters, uh, plus uh, speed skiing at Breckenridge. Well, we looked at Breckenridge and 
Arapahoe Basin. But I can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. The um, the period from 83 to 88 I was a, pretty much an independent consultant in a number of, of uh, particular jobs. And then uh, because I was also uh, one of them damn environmentalists wanting to save wilderness and natural environments on, um, I took a job up here in Bozeman from uh, Crested Butte in 1989 and went to work for the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem mm. or uh, Coalition, which uh, I only lasted a couple of years there. And to my uh, dismay, well, not dismay at all, actually, to my advantage in 1992, I was invited to come back to Silverton by the state of Colorado, Knox Williams, primarily to uh, take over a, a, a uh, originating highway safety project that was occurring on Red Mountain Pass. So for the next three winters, I, I also did that, uh, setting up instrumentation sites and supervising the avalanche control developing safety protocols for both plow drivers and the public and the observers, which is continuing to this day. So it was a very good uh, um, experience to sort of cap off my avalanche-related career in 94, 95. And that was the year that the whole state of Colorado had merged CAIC with CDOT. That's right. Right. Yeah. After a couple... Avalanche or uh, highway worker fatalities That's in '93. Right. Yeah, on the, well, one on Red Mountain Pass, yeah. which was really tragic. Yeah, that I might make a mention of that. It was it occurred on the East Riverside, and the uh, East Riverside Avalanche Runout Zone had been uh, a notorious place. It had there were avalanche fatalities before that. And Art Mears was a good friend from Gunnison, uh, was asked to design an avalanche shed for that particular section of highway. And he did, and it was quite a lengthy shed. It was going to go under the main chute of the East Riverside and then under the uh, very adjacent avalanche that uh, descended about 800 feet to the road. And it was uh, determined that the, the state could only afford the main chute coverage and not the adjacent. And that's where the avalanche fatality mm. occurred there, which was Eddie Emil. It was really tragic and sad. So, Don, you've seen a, much of the, really the entirety of the evolution of avalanche forecasting and mitigation practices throughout your lifetime. What are several advents in the industry that you feel have had the most impact, would you say? Well, probably the uh, entering the digital age, mm -hmm. certainly for communication, because it makes um, the communication path available to just about everybody. 
the downside of that could also be considered the uh, um, maybe the absence of, of really good knowledge about the snowpack. Mm. And though I never was much of a backcountry skier, although I, I shouldn't say that, I did a lot of backcountry skiing, but in the spring, uh, when it was the snowpack, I would consider to be stable and uh, sweet corn. But the, uh, it was to my advantage um, to be able to look at avalanche starting zones up close and not worry about my own safety. So I skied to the tops of lots of the Silverton Highway 550 avalanches and um, avalanches on some of the 14ers, avalanches that override and oversee different ski areas around Aspen Highlands and so on. Um, so that's really the time to learn and the time to get good skiing in. And I was really adverse um, to the risks that were present um, in midwinter. So I would not ski avalanche terrain uh, knowingly in the winter, or at least plan knowingly. If I got to a place that I'd planned to ski and looked to me like it was avalanche prone, I just wouldn't ski it. Mm. So I didn't do any testing necessarily or dug pits or anything like that. I uh, relied on my instrumentation interpretation to do forecasts and the uh, history of avalanche events um, that told me what the next avalanche event was most likely to be. And uh, that worked very well for highway avalanche work. Mm -hmm. uh, ski areas, the, the ski uh, uh, patrols really have a, a responsibility that they, they meet very well, it appears, in constantly monitoring and reacting to avalanche conditions. But as a backcountry skier, only in the spring for me. Mm -hmm. Pretty safe bet, right? Safe bet, and you got to learn your avalanche bet. Yeah. You kind of forementioned this, but anything you think has been detrimental? Um, you know, you feel like sometimes maybe younger avalanche professionals in this day and age have too much information at their fingertips and it's easy to kind of lose sight of the basics or you think well, all of this digital information is just a good thing? Yeah, that, I think that's true. I mean, there's <clears throat> so much... Uh, information available and so much of it is in numbers and and uh, concepts and such that um, it may be that uh, it's more difficult to winnow out the, the um, signs of avalanche instability. I don't really know. I haven't done enough um, backcountry or side country skiing uh, to really formulate an opinion about that. And, and if it were my relatives or friends, I think I'd be advising that spring skiing is, is the best. 
um, and maybe not uh, look at uh, the backcountry as a, a place to recreate in. Mm. But certainly the um, advent of a network of avalanche warning centers or avalanche information centers serves the public very well. Now, especially here in Bozeman. I mean, I, I look at um, on the on the web, on Google, uh, at a lot of avalanche information centers in the in the uh, wintertime, and certainly the communication skills of the Bozeman Center um, impresses me probably the most. Mm-hmm. And that could come from it being very concentrated here, whereas in Colorado we're looking at, for instance, we're looking at dozens of backcountry entry points and so on. But uh, I think the communication with the general public is the most important thing. And, of course, when the general public uh, travels to ski, uh, especially in the snowmobile world, um, coming frequently from the Midwest or out of state, um, they really need to be educated to preserve their uh, their way of life with snowmobile mm-hmm. encounters and avalanches. Sure. Especially if they're not, not used to being an avalanche train, right? There's some very skilled riders from the Midwest who've been riding probably their whole lives and maybe make the pilgrimage out here, you know, every five years or so, but not used to being in that avalanche train, perhaps. That's an excellent observation. Yeah. That's the circumstance. Um, so, Don, care to share a story about when you've been caught off guard by a weather or snow event, snowpack or, or weather? Well, there is one. There was one experience down in, in the Silverton area in the first iteration of my work down there where I uh, got caught in an avalanche on the highway called the Cement Fill. And um, we tied uh, the Cement Fill ran across the road as I was driving up the road. Mm. And uh, it moved the truck a little bit. And I was able to back away from it. But I hadn't anticipated that. Mm. I had uh, thought that I was that had been there, I think, three or four years by then. And uh, was really comfortable driving up there that day. But I wasn't uh, in a safe position at all. Mm. But I can't really recall and because I'm really adverse to situations like this it uh, I guess that I've been very conservative in my approach to exposing myself I guess maybe thinking about all the forecasting that you've done so not necessarily your personal involvement in avalanches but has there been a time when um, something an avalanche has has initiated and released and was way bigger than you guys forecasted it to be or, and, and what kind of led up to that if there was that scenario? Well, I can't recall a specific scenario like that, but certainly uh, that has occurred. Mm -hmm. And as Colorado uh, experienced this past winter, um, it, it, you do get, 
strong variations in the size of avalanches. Even though you may predict one, it could be a lot bigger uh, than you forecast. And the uh, way to avoid being too surprised is to be very careful Mm -hmm. um, with that. I mean, it's difficult with uh, ground-based avalanche um, mitigation measures like artillery uh, to go out and, and fire at all times. And this is where uh, the Daisy Bell or the Gazex is really an advantage as long as you don't have a trigger-happy trigger uh, person uh, doing the actual control work. And uh, it's a difficult position to be in to have the tool to release avalanches but not being able to release them. Mm. Every time you press the button, you have to wait till the optimum moment before you do that. So as Teton Pass, for example, is really a difficult area to forecast for. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially the evolution of uh, skiing now means that people are skiing on avalanche paths uh, that affect the highways. And we never used to do that. We never did pits prior to avalanche uh, release on any of those highway avalanche paths. We'd always go up there and look at the fracture line. I mean, we did hundreds of pits on the San Juan, but we'd either do them on uh, slopes that approximated what the avalanche uh, starting zones looked like that we were interested in, or after the avalanche had released, we'd climb up and do uh, fracture line profiles to see really what released them. Mm. So that we learned from that. Well, it certainly is kind of a double-edged sword these days with so many more people out there in the backcountry. So we do have more information, real-time data. Um, but the downside to that is that we have some of these social issues where recreationists and highways meet, right? Yes. It's interesting that uh, that sort of brings up a, a subject that uh, compares Europe with um, with North America, the U.S., mm-hmm. especially because the Europeans, um, and I know this from speaking to avalanche people in uh, Austria and Germany and so on, uh, were very adverse to the use of artillery uh, for avalanche control. And that's really the genesis of how snow fences and snow sheds and um, the uh, stationary avalanche control devices emerged was from the European paradigm of uh, avoid artillery Mm -hmm. because they'd been through two wars where artillery was used against people. And I've been told this by European avalanche specialists that that is the genesis of snow fences, the genesis of uh, avalanche sheds. So those remotely controlled uh, stationary avalanche devices, avalanche control devices, really have a uh, a value and a benefit. Mm -hmm. Well, we certainly are seeing more installations amongst highways within the U.S. these days, aren't we? We are. Yeah. So, Don, it was great hearing about 
all the different roles that you've held within the avalanche arena, so to speak, what would you say has been the most challenging one that you've that you've held? Well, surely the speed ski. Uh-huh. There's uh, the situation there was a mile and a half of access over snow access under about I think we had 18 avalanche paths and then getting to the actual speed skiing venue itself which was surrounded by avalanche areas and of course when you think of it you can't have speed skiing without steep slopes and you can't have avalanches without steep slopes so uh, preparing the speed skiing course and the access the ingress and egress from there was probably the biggest challenge. And fortunately, uh, we had a budget and personnel that uh, were amenable to spending money to where we could use helicopters and the avalanche to mitigate that through uh, explosive control. And Your avalanche? Yeah, my avalanche yeah. at the time. And uh, fortunately, we... Uh, were able to pull that off without any frightening uh, examples of avalanche uh, release. It's interesting, the avalanche eventually sold it to, uh, you mentioned that, sold it to a mining company down on Wolf Creek Pass or hmm. south of Wolf Creek. And uh, I don't know where it went. <laughs> I think it... Uh, disintegrated in their garage. <laughs> was it still in pretty good working order when you oh, sold it? Yeah. yeah. And so what time what time of year was this speed skiing going on? This was in the springtime? Or? Springtime. Yeah. Yep. But we controlled all winter. Uh-huh. And in preparation in for preparation it. In preparation for it. Yeah. And uh, when we controlled the course itself, we were taken in by helicopter. Mm. And the helicopter would wait for us. Uh, if it was got closer to springtime where there was less chance of spontaneous avalanche release, we went in on snowmobiles mm-hmm. and um, were able to do our avalanche control work. In fact, that photograph right there. Oh, yeah. See? The, the far one. Yeah. There's, and so you slung in the avalanche yeah. with a long line or something? No, we carried it in the summertime. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so you were not only mitigating for ongoing hazard, but you actually wanted the debris on the course. Yeah, correct? we wanted the debris on the yeah. course. And knew we could get it right. if our timing was right. Sure. And uh, and knew it would be there. Yeah. It really made for a good good surface to be on. What, what, and how many people were involved in this? It sounds like a pretty big operation. Oh, pretty much just myself and the helicopter pilot. Okay. And uh, Art Mears, who's there. Uh-huh. Whoever I could attempt to go in with me and yeah. work on the avalanche. Cool. <laughs> that sounds like a, a pretty interesting job to have. Right. Well, we had a good crew uh-huh. for the... Development of the uh, the course itself. Sure. And Chris George was was a principal uh, motivator in that. And I guess that involved more people, huh? like oh the, yeah, the preparation of the course and that's right. Getting some snowcats up there and yep, yeah. And then we had the helicopter, of course. 
Yeah. We had two helicopters that would take the speed skiers almost to the top of the course. Wow. And uh, we uh, built a helipad up high. We're using uh, uh, Soloy Bell Soloys, uh -huh. so we can only take two at a time. Okay. But it was really simple. Yeah. And uh, the helicopter pilot wouldn't even have to shut down, of course. You could right. just pick up people at the bottom and take them up there in about two minutes yeah. to the start of the course, and then they'd sidestep up the edge of the course. And then for the actual race, there were, there were spectators there? And oh, yeah. And a lot of people... Skiing in or walking in? Uh, walking in. We had shuttles, snow uh -huh. shuttles. Uh -huh. And it was really something. Yeah. And we had a great course. I mean, 124 miles an hour. Uh, I think with uh, it would be still a competitive course today, even though the Europeans are going 150 miles an hour. Yeah. 160 miles an hour. Anything over 100 is pretty fast. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, Don, just thinking back on your career, you know, it's been great hearing some of the highlights. What would you say maybe your most proud moment has been? Well, I think pulling off the speed skiing. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, in general, um, not having any uh, fatal incidents mm -hmm. uh, that would have otherwise been under my control. Um, Nowhere have we had anybody caught in a traffic avalanche. Uh, none of the work that I've done with ski areas has resulted in anything but safe skiing. And uh, I'm fairly proud of that. Uh, there's certainly been some tragic in-vicinity avalanche fatalities that we've had to go in on, but uh, nothing under the control that Myself and my crew has had any uh, any influence over. Mm -hmm. It's all been a safe operation. Well, that's good. Any advice for the budding avalanche professional out there? Um, learn your avalanche starting zones. Learn them in the spring. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, digging pits in the spring is not a bad idea, but that's only to uh, acquaint yourselves with the uh, with the um, snowpack itself, because the, the weak layers are still are still present. This that they, the fact that they don't um, influence the behavior of the snowpack is primarily because the strong layers get stronger, and uh, in the course of a of a winter, so you can learn a lot about avalanches, avalanche paths by being on on them, but only when it's Mm, that's good advice. I was able to be involved in risk and have be satisfied that I took a risk and I got through it. Right. I mean, you know, you sort of pat yourself on the back that whew, I made it, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, without much effort. And nowadays it takes a lot of effort to... Uh, be in a risky situation. We seem to want to take care of, of our populations and not allow them to take risks mm -hmm. and stuff. And yet I feel I had a, a plenty of risks um, that I'm adverse to, or risk aversion. 
situational awareness. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that might be the main. If the if there's less situational awareness in the current population than in the maybe previous generation of that's right. backcountry skier or avalanche worker. Yeah, and uh, and I think that uh, situational awareness is a, uh, relates to devices. So I mean, these devices uh, get you out of a lot of problems, or at least answer a lot of questions. But uh, are you going to be able to answer your own questions and uh, to your own advantage, or is the iPhone going to save you? Mm. You know, it's well. This technology isn't really giving us any more experience, right? And so I would correlate experience with situational awareness because if you break situational awareness down, it's whether your perception of the reality is the actual reality, yeah. right? And so through more experience, we have a better perception of the situation. That's right. And so maybe we have this false sense of situational awareness through some mm-hmm. of this technology. And I think that's where your mentors mm. come in, but it's hard to find a mentor nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had Stillman and Washville mm-hmm. primarily, and I had long-term relationships with both of them, which made a difference instead of... <clears throat> And not that this is wrong, but I have a avalanche course instructor you spend two days with, three days with, and that's it. Right. He's gone. I mean, you know, Stillman and I had share a beer. And, uh, I knew about his family. I knew about uh, La Chapelle, and we became pretty good friends. Mm-hmm. But it was he was certainly a mentor. Mm-hmm. I just got to know him well. I was really fortunate. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. Right. Well, Don, thanks so much for taking the time today to sit down and and share your story of your career and your life uh, with the greater community and and some of the lessons that you've learned throughout that career. So thank you very much. Well, good. Well, thank you for coming by, and I, I hope this was helpful. Yeah, it certainly was. And useful. All right. Cheers, Don. Cheers to you. y'all enjoyed that great interview with don bachman if you're enjoying the podcast please tell a friend spread the word if you want to go a step further you could rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on it does really help get the word out if you have feedback for the show or want to get in touch with me you can email me at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com don't forget to check out the website www.theavalanchehour.com You can find uh, past shows on the website as well as contributor bios and we've got a, we even have a little store with some swag you can purchase to help support the show and of course our artwork was created by Mike T you demand T our music today was bringing us into the hour was Greener Grass Remix by Ketza track was made possible through permission from the artists and bringing us out of the hour right now is Lobo Loco with Last Bar Guests and that track was made possible through the Creative Commons license and was found at freemusicarchive.org until next time stay tuned stay safe and keep having fun out there cheers cheers